0: And will you open your bibles first to the book the old testament book Song of Songs the song of songs which is solomon's You'll find our uh, sermon text today in chapter 7 of the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon uh It's on page 486 if you happen to be using the Pew Bibles. Song of Songs, chapter 7. Our sermon text is verses 10 to 13. We will then turn for the rest of the story to Revelation chapter 21 and verses 1 through 5. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Let's give it our reverent, earnest, loving attention. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes have given forth fragrance and over our doors are all choice fruits, both new and old, which I have saved up for you, my beloved. And now we turn... To Revelation chapter 21 and the first five verses. John writes by the Spirit Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Amen. May God add his blessing to this reading and our understanding of his word. The love of Christ for his one and only bride, the church, is beyond all question the greatest love story ever told. It's a terrible shame that more people don't understand this, that they don't get it. Many haven't even given the matter a moment's thought. But how different life in this world would be if our own most intimate relationships reflected more brightly and clearly the love, the incredible love of Christ. How different the world would be if our children and our grandchildren were raised securely in the homes of married couples whose ardent love more closely approximates the covenant love of Jesus Christ for his bride. What kind of men and women do you suppose those children might grow up to be? Already this morning, we've sung the answer to that question in the 112th Psalm. His children shall be mighty men upon the earth renowned. The generation of the just in blessing shall abound. It's a blessed home, rich beyond measure, whose mom and dad love one another in some measure as Christ loves his bride, the church. And in homes where that is the case, the children notice and the children follow. I'd even go so far as to say this, that every human love story, if it's truly about love and not just about some passing hormonal thing that falls far short of it, every true love story resonates at some points and to some degree the original story of God's love, his great love for his people. A love so great that on his own initiative, on his own initiative, he resolved to quit the fragrantly gardened palaces of heaven, to quit the throne served from eternity by myriads of angels, to quit these things so that in their place he might take on the limitations and the afflictions and infirmities of the one he loves, that he might share her griefs And bear her burdens. And confess openly his love for her. And ultimately, upon a despicable cross, spill the last drop of his infinitely precious blood for her. Dear ones, when the great heart of Jesus beat its last upon the cross, it was beating for her. For you. Do you want to know the full height and breadth and depth of love? The Apostle John lays it out for us in his first letter. In this is love, he says. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You may remember that On the road to Emmaus the afternoon of his resurrection day, Jesus joined these two grieving disciples who were on their way home after an emotionally devastating Passover pilgrimage to Jerusalem. With their own eyes, these two men and plenty of other people else, they had seen their Messiah die a terrible death that very week. And so their fondest hopes set upon him are dashed, their hearts are broken. It's true they'd heard and dismissed out of hand the giddy report of several silly women among them earlier that morning, but they still understood neither the cross nor who it was now walking with them. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And those scriptures, of course, were the Old Testament. The Old Testament. So the key to all the scriptures is Christ. The organizing principle of all the scriptures is Christ. If we're to interpret and understand rightly any passage of the Bible, it has to be with reference to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so it is with our sermon text this morning. From the days of the early church fathers, this song of songs has inspired generations to reflect on and rejoice in the reciprocal love of Christ the King and his chosen bride, the church. Which isn't to say it's not a fantastic Love story, even at the level of mere human attraction. The one man, one man's attraction for one incredibly desirable woman, one woman for one irresistible man. This book, with its powerful imagery, reaches us to the very core, even as men and women. It shows us something exquisitely beautiful, something that lonely hearts down through the ages, lonely hearts today, have longed for, and still long for, intimacy. Intimacy, human intimacy. Modest Jewish rabbis, in fact, used to forbid young people from reading this book until they had attained the age of 30. 30. Because it was just too racy, too age inappropriate for anyone younger. And thirty, But of course God in his goodness and wisdom in the beginning so constituted humanity fashioning the first woman out of the rib nearest the heart of the first man. He so constituted us that by nature we long for that one flesh reconnection at every level That's another sermon, but I want to point out to you today that the overwhelming power of this natural attraction, this longing provides a context for understanding the sheer determination of Christ and his church to enjoy a lifelong walk of love together. They cannot and will not be denied. So, How deep, how rich is this Song of Songs, which is Solomon's? Early in the third century AD, the Christian philosopher Origen wrote an explanation of these eight chapters. An explanation that filled twelve volumes. Twelve volumes on the Song of Songs. Nine centuries later, Bernard of Clairvaux died in the year 1183, having delivered 86 sermons on this book, only reaching, at the time of his death, the end of chapter 2. Yes, it's rich with the love of Christ. So what have Christ and his bride to say to one another in this book? Not surprisingly, the bride has a great deal to say about her beloved. I mean, the girl's smitten. She's smitten. Her friends, back in chapter 5, ask her to explain this incurable lovesickness. She's the one who calls it lovesickness. And her friends ask her to explain this lovesickness that's come over her. Ask her to explain this carefree giddiness that overcomes even a woman's natural reticence and bids her girlfriends to tell him, on her behalf, tell him, just how absolutely head over heels she is in love with him. And these daughters of Jerusalem, her friends, can't believe their ears when she says this. They can't believe what she's asking them to do because women down through the ages really haven't changed all that significantly. And women just don't share these things. do they? Women don't tend to wear their hearts on their sleeve. So in verse 9 of that fifth chapter, her friends ask her, what kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women, what kind of beloved is your beloved that thus you adjure us, that is, that you want us to go on your behalf and tell him that you love him? What kind of a man is he? After all, we're all girls here. We know what men are like. We understand the bell curve that all things considered the vast majority of men cluster somewhere around the 50th percentile. So who's this guy? Dear ones, I want you to pay attention and remember her response to them. She says, my beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is gold, pure gold. His locks are clusters of dates, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory and laid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon. Choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Oh, yes, she has a few things to say about him. He's off the chart wonderful, that's all. He's off the chart. But that's not the amazing thing. The real amazement begins with our passage today in verse 10. Now in his presence, no longer with the daughters of Jerusalem, but she is there with him. In his presence, her, her heart speaks within her. This isn't merely her female fantasy or hoping against hope. This is her firmly settled conviction she's expressing in verse 10. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. That's the real wonder of it, isn't it? That this incredible Man among men, this absolutely gorgeous champion whose very presence never fails to set her heart all aflutter, that his desire for her should match her desire for him. It is simply too good to be true as she sees things. Too good to be true. But it is true. It is true. And may every one of you young men and women, boys and girls who are here today, find it to be so in your own experience when that time comes. That your soulmate, whoever he or she may be, that your soulmate be equally yoked with you. Not only in terms of a deep, unshakable Christian faith, but also in the ardor of his or her love for you. Desire for you. That even when you're old and gray, she or he will match you, even mirror you in a lifelong mutual desire. But as I said, the amazing thing here isn't that the church should desire Christ but that Christ should desire his bride, the church. Because after all, think about it. What am I? What are you? What are all of us put together? We're a handful of people with issues. We are sinners meeting together once a week in a hotel conference room. We're a handful of people with problems making ends meet. Problems raising our children. Problems sometimes just staying healthy. And certainly problems with finding our way in life. That's who we are. We come to this all-sufficient, all-glorious champion... Without a dowry, without personal beauty, without personal charm, without personal cleverness, without much of anything to offer him, except ourselves just exactly as we are, for what that may be worth. If you'd like some time to read a graphic description, a very graphic description of God's view of the unworthy sinners to whom he shows his amazing grace. Let me direct you to the 16th chapter of the prophet Ezekiel. I won't read it now, but I invite you to read it on your own time. It is not a flattering picture. So why in the world does Christ so desire this church? Why does he love his bride with an everlasting love? Well, here once again, I revert to one of my favorite and most helpful scripture passages when it comes to these theological matters that are difficult to fathom. Many of you have heard this from my lips before. It is Deuteronomy 29:29. In this singular verse, God explains everything by explaining precisely nothing by showing us that he owes us no explanation. Ah. It begins with the words, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Dear ones, let that sink in. That there are things we may never know either in time or in eternity. God knows why he loves us. That's enough. God knows why Christ desires us. And we've got to learn to be content to a certain degree with the bottomless mysteries of his loving desire for the church. But searching the scriptures, I would add, we can at least say this. That despite ourselves, Christ loves and even desires us because we are a gift given to him by his heavenly father. You'll find this in the Gospel of John around the sixth chapter. He loves and desires us because we're a gift given to him by his heavenly father before the world was. A father-to-son gift of love entrusted into his safekeeping from, as I said, before the foundation of the world. But you, his church, are no ordinary gift. The father promised you to his son not as a bicycle or as a baseball bat or a baseball mitt, He promised you to him as a bride. And he did this long before you were actually fit to present to him. Essentially, we the church are the underage party to an arranged marriage. And the church, by grace populating the world from the days of Genesis 3.15 all the way up to the present day, we are that ugly duckling that Hans Christian Andersen wrote about. We're that awkward, freckle-faced, fat girl sitting by herself in the school cafeteria year after lonely year. And yet... He desires you. He can't wait to see you. We consider this desire of his some time ago, many, many months ago, back when I preached from chapter 2, beginning at verse 8, where she says, listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming. Climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he is standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. And dear ones, even now he is. Even now he's peering through the lattice at us. Even now, his desire is for you, the ugly duckling, you, the freckle-faced fat girl. Why? Because his Holy Spirit is working within you wonders of sanctifying grace. An ugly duckling may occasionally, in fact, grow up to be an elegant swan. And I can tell you that times without number, freckle-faced fat girls grow up to be radiant brides. Radiant. The difference is what happens between the before picture and the after picture. The difference is what happens in that interim. What happens in this case is some long, leisurely, Time spent with her beloved. Back in chapter 2, it was he who took the initiative, prodding her awake and literally asking her out. Through the lattice he said to her, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along, for behold, the winter has passed, the rain is over and gone, the flowers have appeared in the land, the time has arrived for singing, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard In our land. The fig tree has ripened its figs. And the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise my darling. And come along. That was back in chapter 2. But here this time. In chapter 7 verses 11 to 13. It is she who speaks to him. And she says. Come my beloved. Let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. You see, his earlier initiative in seeking her out now emboldens her to seek more of the same from him. Because what they'd already enjoyed together now became something to be sought after and frequently more time together. More time together. That's what we need. More time together, without the usual distractions of city life, you can have a quiet, heart-to-heart conversation in a vineyard or an orchard that you might find difficult to have back home with the TV, the computer, and the phone constantly drawing you away from one another. Dear ones, let's learn and discipline ourselves to come away with Christ. Often, give him your love. There's time enough to work in those vineyards. There's time enough to work in those orchards. Time enough for labor. Let's find time to talk. Time even to honeymoon with the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember that when Moses at the tent of meeting used to appear before the Lord, his face would glow with the radiance of having met with him. The same principle applies to the church at large, this freckle-faced fat girl who is destined to grow up in due time into the glorious radiance of a bride without spot or wrinkle Or any such thing. Miracles like that don't happen all by themselves. Spend time alone with this glorious man. Jesus. Spend time in this word that speaks of him on every page. The Apostle Paul understood the connection between the before. Picture and the after picture of this bride of Christ, the church. The key to that glorious transformation is time spent in the presence of your beloved, time spent reflecting on his word, time spent reflecting at his table, time spent in reflection at the throne of grace. And understanding the connection, the key to our transformation, he tells us in the words of 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, Paul tells us that we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Come away with him to make that happen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sending of your dear Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our Husband. Thank you that he has undertaken on our behalf what we could never begin to accomplish for ourselves, our redemption from sin, our cleansing, our setting apart, our being set apart in holiness to him. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us a deeper appreciation of this covenant of grace and him who has made it with us, who has become our beloved and we his bride. Thank you for the tokens of that love that we have in your word, the sacraments and prayer. And we pray that we would grow in our understanding of these things, that over the course of time, Over the course of our lives, we would be able, by grace, to detect that change, that transformation into what we could never be unless your spirit were mightily at work within us. We pray these things with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.